As I said, we're going to uh, hear now from Andrew Towner. If I can ask Andrew to come out. And we'll find out uh, who he is and what he's about. We're going to hear about what is Anglicanism and why does it matter. I'm imagining that a few of you have an, a bit of an inkling as to what Anglicanism might be. But, um, Andrew, you may be able to tell us more. So tell us how long have you been an Anglican? Have you any right to speak on this subject? Uh, well, obviously, whoever runs the Jake conference thought I had a right to speak <laughs> on the subject. So, uh, and you know me well. Um, I have been an Anglican since 42 years and 10 months ago uh, when I was born. So my <laughs> father was teaching in an Anglican school when I was born, and I was baptised in the crypt of uh, Worcester Cathedral on the 10th of December uh, 1976, and it was so cold that there was ice on the surface of the water that they were to <laughs> baptise me in. And so not only do I, am I wearing a bobble hat in the pictures, it's a quality bobble hat, and for someone two months old, I had outstanding taste. Uh, but they had to break the ice and then baptise me. Uh, my father's an Anglican clergyman, or he retired a couple of years ago, so I've grown up in a vicarage, and my dad's one of my great heroes, so I'm very grateful to God for him. Uh, I've been a chorister over the years. I filled, as an, filled in as an organ scholar uh, for a while when I was at university, so I've sung and played in all sorts of different cathedrals, and I still sing choral, even song pretty regularly in Carlisle Cathedral. I live just up the road from Carlisle Cathedral, so I'm one of the depths there. So uh, I've You're got an a, Anglican got a, of the Anglicans. I, yeah, this is Philippians 3 for the New Covenant basically, isn't it? It's <laughs> like, I see, your, I see your Anglicanism and I'll raise you. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, and I'm a conviction Anglican. I've, I guess I was fed through Anglican churches and grew up through them. So when the call to ministry came, uh, the natural place to serve is within the Anglican Church that had fed um, and, I guess, fanned that call. Anyone yeah. else uh, baptised in the cathedral? Through ice? No. Well, that's Come good. on. Yeah, that's a unique story. Come well done. <laughs> so um, that's, that's your Anglican sort of background. What are, you, what are you doing now? What's your role now? You said you live in Carlisle, which is miles away from anywhere, apart yes, from Scotland. N yeah, Northampton. Now, I know why it can't be called Southampton, okay? I get that. Could it be called Middlehampton? Because it's not, if it's I'm honest, way. massively far north. It's taken me four and a half hours of coming very fast on a virgin train. Well, it wasn't always very fast. South to get to what I'm now going to call Midhampton. Uh, newspapers are no longer called newspapers, by the way. They're called spin papers. So we change these things' names. This is now Middlehampton. Okay. Um, I'm up in Carlisle. I've been there about six years. Um, I was ordained in St Paul's Cathedral, served in London Diocese in a church plant for a few years, uh, Christchurch Beckenham for a few years, and then I've been here nearly six years, and I'm just a normal parish vicar, um, and I also chair the Board of Education uh, for Carlisle Diocese, so I'm heavily involved uh, in making sure that every young person in the whole of Cumbria gets a chance to hear about Jesus in their school, and uh, when the bishop asked me to take it on, I just said, James, just to be clear, I'm going to use your name to get the gospel into every school in Cumbria. He said, yeah. I said, do I need to run the letters you're going to write on my behalf past you? He said, no. So this is fantastic. So this is what I do. So I just write with James's name and just uh, tell them how we're going to make sure they hear about Jesus. Is it not like a signet the... ring anymore? <laughs> he hasn't given me that yet. No, uh, that's an idea. I might ask for that. And I also serve within Church Society. I'm a member of the council, and I actually serve as chair of Church Society Council at the moment. Um, don't ask what I do in my spare time, because that would be funny. You don't have any. Now, I, I, do, noticed... no, I, no, I I take a day off. Take a day oh, off good. Every, every well, day. I've noticed that tomorrow you're also leading a seminar, Making a Joyful Noise. So is this you singing or something? Is, I... Would that be a joyful noise? <laughs> I think there would be very little other joyful noises if I was to start singing. But tell uh, us about your The seminar. idea Why of the seminar, this seminar is for anybody and everybody. So this is not a seminar for keynote musicians. This is a seminar for all of us who are thinking about ministry and thinking about how we plan and lead worship services. So if you're tone deaf, this is a perfect seminar for you because you're going to be involved in ministry in helping people sing. That's you, so, Ros. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I wasn't going to do too much naming and shaming, but that's fine. So um, I've got a couple of things to share about um, the Anglican view of the gathering with our Bibles open and with our Book of Common Prayer open, we can think about the Anglican view of the gathering. But it's also been plenty of time just for Q&A. So if you're terrified of picking songs, great seminar to come to. Uh, if you're an expert, then you can answer all their questions. So please come as well. Great. Sounds good.
Um, well, why don't we pray for you, and then oh, we'll yeah. uh, hand over to you and uh, hear what you have to say on this subject. So, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Andrew, for the way that you um, have nurtured him in the Church of England and in biblical faith for many, many years. We thank you for all that you've done in his life and through his ministry, not just in the parish, but in the diocesan Board of Education and in Church Society too. We pray now as he speaks to us, I pray that you'd help him to speak clearly and boldly. Please help us uh, to listen well, that we might learn and be edified and built up in our most holy faith. For Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 Thank you. I'll just grab my water. Um, is it worth saying that there's a chance for questions at the end? So um, if as you're listening you think, I'd like to know the next 90 seconds on that, or if you find yourself thinking, did, did he really just say that? Uh, then uh, take, take some scribbles down and uh, be really happy to uh, try and answer questions. Uh, the year was 1823, and legend has it that at Rugby School in Warwickshire, a schism was born that still exists around the globe today. William Webb Ellis, during a game of football, is reputed to have picked up the ball and run with it. And the repercussions are still felt. Football remained football, and rugby became rugby. Almost certainly, this is the game of rugby's very own creation myth. Most historians think it didn't quite happen like that. But it illustrates a key point of the topic that I've been asked to speak on this afternoon. In sport, you're either playing rugby or you're playing football. And all the players know which one they're playing. And most importantly of all, the referee understands which one they're refereeing. So the referee has absolute clarity to blow their whistle and say no. Or to blow their whistle and say yes, try, or a goal, or offside, or whatever. The referee in each context knows precisely what is and isn't permitted. Now, is Anglicanism equally clear? The answer to the second half of the question I've been asked to address is really obvious, isn't it? What is Anglicanism and why does it matter? The why does it matter is really obvious. You and I need clarity to know what we can legally do as Anglicans. We need clarity so that we can perceive how to rightly treat people. Is this someone that I welcome and affirm? Is this someone I greet, love, and rebuke? We need clarity to understand how to react to events. Bless it, steer clear of it, teach against it. And in Anglican ministry, just as in the Christian life, one is constantly taking these decisions. Whether one stops and thinks about them or not, one is constantly taking these decisions. Now, many of us, by character or by instinct or by training or by modeling, find this concept really hard. Very few people wake up in the morning with a desire to offend people or to condemn them. And I, for one, am really grateful for that. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, gosh, how many heresies can I spot today? I don't, don't wake up like that. I love Jesus very much. I honor him. I praise him. I worship him. I'm colossally grateful to him. That's the heart of my faith. But that does have some entailments. Because the heart of being a Christian is trusting Christ and seeking by his spirit to live like him. And Jesus models for us a deep trust in his Father that teaches him to welcome some whom nobody else would ever consider even greeting, as well as to turn away or rebuke others nobody else could imagine God approving, not approving. Shall I just read that again? Because that's so, so important. Jesus models both welcoming some people that no one else would consider greeting, as well as turning away or rebuking others nobody else could imagine God not approving. Jesus models both of those, and the Holy Spirit's work in a Christian is to make us like Jesus. So we need to know what Anglicanism is, 
so that we understand what we can legally and in a godly manner do. And if we're to learn to live like Jesus, we shall need to learn not only how to do each of those things, but also the necessary wisdom and insight to discern when they're required of us. So to summarize, what is Anglicanism and why does it matter? Well, why does it matter? Because we're always making decisions. Shall I go to that thing or not? Shall I welcome that person or not? Shall I give them money or not? Shall I accept them at communion or not? Shall I pray with them or not? And so on and so on and so on. Life is full of a million decisions like that. And what is Anglicanism is how you and I are going to work those things through. Now, I've said that Christian faith is very obviously focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's our great example here. And remember that Jesus, who we meet in the Bible, is constantly surprising. He's constantly surprising. And those are the surprises of perfection. So Jesus is unbelievably welcoming, shockingly welcoming. Remember, one of Jesus' reputations is, oh, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's not often that I pray that that'll be my reputation around Carlisle. But it wouldn't be the end of the world, would it, if the gossip in the chippy was, that Andrew Towner bloke, he welcomes sinners. That'd be a bit of a Jesus-like reputation, wouldn't it? And yet the risen Lord Jesus can speak in Revelation and say, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. So the same Lord Jesus that's going to teach us to welcome radically is also going to teach us to discern radically. Does that make sense? So let me take us to Matthew uh, 7 very briefly. I was a cradle Anglican, as you've already heard. So when I read this Bible passage, I hear it to a certain tune. Uh, You may hear it to a certain tune also. We will not be singing this in seminars tomorrow. The wise man built his house upon a rock. Does anybody else? <laughs> now, just sit on your hands for a minute before we all start doing the actions, because we could do the rain came down. Can that, can that be our next song? Do the musicians have that one? No? <laughs> just listen really, Kat. Just, just listen to the, so this is Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Do you notice both people hear Jesus' words? The foolish person hears Jesus' words, And the wise person hears Jesus' words. The distinction between them is those who put them into practice and don't. So the wise man hears Jesus' words and puts them into practice. The foolish man, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like the foolish man. In other words, to be a true Christian, we need not only to love and honor and adore and worship and praise and live for King Jesus, but we need to hear his words and put them into practice. And that's going to be at the heart of what we're thinking about this afternoon. One more caveat, and then we'll dive in, because um, I know you're going to ask this later on. Um, when we're talking about what is Anglicanism, we are not talking about who's in the kingdom of God, because those two things are not coterminous, okay? Just to be really super clear. So we're not talking here about how can you tell who a real Christian is. That's a really important topic. That's not our topic, okay? We're thinking about what is Anglicanism. Okay, I've got um, three things it isn't and five things it might be. So what is Anglicanism? Well, the answer is it depends on who you ask, but you've asked me. So let me give you a few examples, okay? Uh, Someone who calls the communion table an altar, are they an Anglican? Someone who doesn't have a bishop, are they an Anglican? Someone who refuses to do infant baptism, are they an Anglican? A church that has both an organ and a robed choir, are they Anglican? Someone who prays in tongues, are they Anglican? Someone who has never worn robes or even a dog collar and refuses to do so, are they Anglican? 
Someone who advertises mass at their church. Are they Anglican? The Episcopal Church, is it Anglican? Amy, the Anglican Mission in England, is it Anglican? You and me and her and he, are we Anglican? In other words, it's colossally complex, isn't it? If you think you can answer all those questions, then I will gladly cede you the microphone. But what we're aiming to do is try and think about those <coughs> sorts of issues. I've got three ineffectual methods to define it and five necessary ingredients to understand it. So I've got a three and a five. I'm terribly sorry, I haven't committed all of these fully and finally to memory yet, so there we go. We'll test you by the end of the conference. Oof. Just on section A? Just on section A. That's fine. Okay, three ineffectual methods to define Anglicanism. Now you tell me afterwards if you think these are wrong or unhelpful. I've come across definitions that are either too broad, too unbiblical, or too bounded. There's three Bs. Too broad, too unbiblical, or too bounded. I was at a conference last year where Anglicanism was defined as this. Anglicanism is biblical because the Bible is its foundation. Anglicanism is reformed because of Richard Hooker, who was clear that the Bible was um, to take precedence over reason and tradition. Anglicanism is conciliar because the way we operate is through councils. And Anglicanism is non-legalistic because not everything is covered in our rules. And two uh, along from me was a, a delightful lady who's been a long-time member of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, FIC, and she leant across to me and said, wow, I've never thought I'd hear an Anglican bishop tell me that I was an Anglican. <laughs> because actually that, that's too broad. By saying that, although I think all those things are true, I don't think that helpfully defines Anglicanism enough. Then you get some definitions that are a bit too unbiblical for me. If you're struggling with me using the Bible too early on in this talk, I'm going to justify that in about five minutes' time. So come back to me in five minutes if you're not convinced by that. Some are too unbiblical. So the Anglican Consultative Council and the Archbishop of Canterbury are part of the Lambeth Quadrilateral, more of that anon. So if the Archbishop of Canterbury was to do something like deny the physical resurrection of Jesus and there are Archbishops of Canterbury in recent history that have done so. And if you think that Anglicanism is defined by being in relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury, then we've all got real trouble, haven't we? So there are some definitions of Anglicanism that for me are just too unbiblical. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, these truths are of first importance that Christ died for our sins. How do you understand that? According to the scriptures, how do we know it happened and he was buried? And that Christ rose again, how do we understand that? According to the scriptures, how do we know it happened and was seen? See what Paul's done there? So the truth and the proof, he died according to the scriptures, we know he was dead because he was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures and we know that he rose because he was seen. How do we understand Jesus' death and how do we understand Jesus' resurrection? All according to the scriptures. So if we lose the physical resurrection, we're losing what Paul says is right at the heart of the fundamentals of what all Christians everywhere should believe. So if you have an Archbishop of Canterbury like Robert Runcie, who denies the physical resurrection, and if you define Anglicanism as being in gospel relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury, then you've got too unbiblical a definition, I think, of what Anglicanism is. Again, tell me later if this is unhelpful. Some are too broad. Some are too unbiblical. Some are too bounded. And over coffee, you can tell me what's wrong with mine. Some are too bounded. Here's how the bounded one works. It works through a logical fallacy. That is, you know your own identity. Okay? You know what your convictions are as a Christian. And you recognize yourself to be an Anglican, because you are. You go to an Anglican church, or you're going to an Anglican theological college. And then you say, Anglicanism should be the thing that I agree with. And then we all try and remake Anglicanism in our own image. And some of us will know that conservative evangelicals have occasionally been guilty of that. So we say, we are conservative evangelicals. We are Anglicans. Therefore, Anglicanism should be conservative evangelical. But if you think about it, that's not an issue that's reserved for conservative evangelicals. You'll see people campaigning all around the Church of England who are saying, here's what I believe. I'm an Anglican. Therefore, the Church of England must fit me. A dog barks, but not everything that barks is a dog. 
and I can prove that for you very briefly. It's a logical fallacy. It's all there in Aristotle. And I'm going to sound like C.S. Lewis. What do they teach them at schools nowadays? It's all there in Plato. I've got five necessary ingredients, and I want to just uh, work through these five minutes each, and I'll give loads of time for questions. I think to be Anglican, you have to have these five alleys in your life. So five alleys. Anglicanism should be defined canonically. That's canonic alley. He's the first alley. Creed alley. Historic alley. International alley. And distinctive alley. Sorry about that one. So canonically, creedly, historically, internationally, and distinctively. I'm just going to try and do five minutes on each of those. Uh, do some scribbling, and then you can ask some questions. So first of all, canonically. So the canons of the Church of England are at the foundation of uh, its legal status, okay? Uh, let me read out the canons of the Church of England. I'm just going to read the first few. In fact, I'm going to read the first six. You might want to notice how often the Bible turns up in these, okay? Because I just made in the statement earlier that some definitions of Anglicanism were too unbiblical, I'm just about to try and justify it. These are all on the Church of England website. So here they go. The Church of England, A1, established according to the laws of this realm under the Queen's Majesty, belongs to the true and apostolic Church of Christ. And as our duty to the said Church of England requires, we do constitute and ordain that no member thereof shall be at liberty to maintain or hold to the contrary. That is, we really are part of the Church. We are Christians. A2. The 39 articles are agreeable to the Word of God, and may be assented unto with a good conscience by all members of the Church of England. That the second half of Canon A2 may be a surprise to some people who write any Anglican newspapers. But every member of the Church of England can subscribe to the 39 articles with a good conscience. Uh, A3 of the Book of Common Prayer. The doctrine contained in the Book of Common Prayer and administrating of the sacraments and other rites and ceremonies of the Church, according to the use of the Church of England, is agreeable to the Word of God, number two. The form of God's worship contained in the said book, for as much as it is not repugnant to the word of God, may be used by all members of the Church of England with a good conscience. A4, on ordinations. The form and manner of making, ordaining, and consecrating of bishops, priests, and deacons, annexed to the Book of Common Prayer, and commonly known as the ordinal, is not repugnant to the word of God, number four. And those who are so made, ordained, consecrated bishops, priests, or deacons, according to said ordinal, are lawfully made, ordained, and consecrated, and ought to be accounted both by themselves and others to be truly bishops, priests, and deacons. A5. The doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in the Holy Scriptures and in such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the Church as are agreeable to the said Scriptures. 6. In particular, such doctrine is to be found in the Third Nine Articles of Religion, Book of Common Prayer, and the Ordinal. Um, how many more do we want to do? Doing it one more, A6. The government of the Church of England under the Queen's Majesty by archbishops, priests, deans, provosts, archdeacons, and the rest of the clergy and of the laity that bear the office in the same is not repugnant to the word of God. So the first six paragraphs of the legal foundation of the Church of England seven times are really clear that things are either um, as much as they agree with the word of God or as long as they don't disagree with the word of God. So it's pretty clear, isn't it, that when Anglicanism is defined canonically, then what we're dependent on is the word of God. Even the creeds and the third articles are agreed with as long as they agree with or as long as they're not repugnant to the word of God. So creedally, sorry, canonically, we must be Bible-open people. Now, I was reading one writer on this. It's good to read some alternative views, isn't it? I, I was reading uh, a writer called David Edwards on this, David Edwards. Um, he quotes that, those canons I've just read, and let me give you his next sentence. This does not mean that the Anglican life is confined to what was explicitly laid down in the Bible, full stop. I think I'll just leave that one up to you to decide. It sounds to me like if you're looking at Anglicanism legally, then what we're concerned with is as much as it agrees with the word of God and as long as it's not repugnant to the word of God. Anglicanism is defined canonically. But of course, Anglicanism does exist outside and distinct from the Church of England. Those are the canons of the Church of England. And there's much more to Anglicanism than that. We'll get to Gafcon, Amy, the FCE, the Church of England continuing, and so on and so on. And if those are all weird words, don't worry, we'll get to them. 
But let me just remind you what happened when the third non articles were first um, published, or just after they were first published. They are explicitly described as for the avoiding of diversity of opinions and for the establishing of consent touching true religion. What's the purpose of the third non articles? Is to avoid a whole bunch of different views. It's to say these things we are clear on. 1571, that was. So, I think one of the five necessary ingredients to understand Anglicanism is it's to be understood canonically. And the canons, there's lots more of them. If you're struggling to sleep tonight, why not pick up a copy and tell me how far you get? I'd like to know. My record is C4. So if you get beyond that without going to sleep, then do let me know over breakfast time, okay? One of the key ingredients to Anglicanism is canonically. He's your first alley. Secondly, creedally. Did you notice that very early on in those canons, there's a reference to the creeds? So a few years ago now, I uh, conducted a marriage service uh, to which uh, an archdeacon I've known for a number of years came. And at the end of the service, uh, the archdeacon came up to me and said, Andrew, I just want you to know that I'm not a conservative evangelical, but I really enjoyed the service. Uh, in fact, I love the Church of England, I just don't believe in miracles or anything like that. Well, I don't know what you'd say to him. Uh, do you know what I said to him? I said, man, if you love the Church of England, surely you've got to believe in miracles. <laughs> and he did at least laugh. Um, someone else I know, and I love very much, uh, has said to me before that he would love to be a vicar if he could just have permission to omit the first two words of the creed. Who'd like to remind us what the first two words of the creed are? I believe, yes. I said to him, he's a dear friend. I said to him, mate, you're a dear friend, but I'm not sure you'll get any bishop to sign off on that. So canonically is one ingredient, creedally is another ingredient. And the creeds include commitments to things like belief on the Trinity, to things like belief on Christology, to things like belief on the return of Christ, and so on and so on and so forth. So one thing you could say to an archdeacon who says they don't believe in miracles is, on what basis do you believe Jesus to be fully God and fully human? It seems to me that when you read the eyewitness testimonies of Scripture, you meet a real man who does things that only God could do. Those are the miracles, right? And when you meet someone who does things that only God can do, we all explain this, don't we, all the time we're doing evangelism, all the time we're doing one-to-one. -one. You say, mate, he's doing things only God could do. What's the, logical, what's the logical thing to assume? He's God. If you meet someone doing things only God can do, then that person's God. I love the fact that Matthew is the writer of the first gospel. Do you remember what Matthew's day job was before he was converted? tax collector right so Matthew's day job goes something like this give us your taxes oh mate oh Matthew oh so good to see you man um do you know I'd do you know this week I would love to I'd do you know I, I really I was really I'd love to pay my taxes this week um but you wouldn't believe what happened to my mother-in-law yesterday and uh, we've had a few outgoings and Matthew's day job all day every day was hearing tall stories wasn't it and saying I don't care give us your money so Matthew was a professional skeptic, wasn't he? Matthew had heard every story under the sun. Now, I taught math for five years. I've heard most stories people can tell. I had one person come and say that the dog had eaten their homework. I said, I'm going to phone home at lunchtime. And it turned out the dog had actually eaten their homework. So I went and found him and said, Rob, well, since you did it once yesterday, it'll be quicker to do tomorrow, won't it? Oh, yeah, probably, sir. I actually had one person whose math homework was blown up by the bomb squad. That was true too. Um, I thought I'd heard most tall stories, but Matthew would have been the expert at hearing tall stories, wouldn't he? And then he heard some stories about a guy who could walk on water, a guy who could make blind people see, a, blind who could make, a guy who could make the lame walk. Don't you love that Matthew wrote the first gospel? And we read his eyewitness testimony, and we meet someone doing stuff that only God can do. Logical conclusion, it's God. So. Anglicanism is necessary, necessarily canonical. It's necessarily creedal. And if someone says to you, I don't believe in miracles, it's not clear to me how they can say the creed. However lovely that person is, and however much they love the Church of England, 
Because to say the creed is to require beliefs about Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human, for example. There's your second alley. So we've had canonic alley, creed alley, and then historic alley. A good friend of mine used to be a, a curate up in Carlisle Diocese, was on his preordination retreat. How many people here have done a preordination retreat? So a few of us, right? So he's on his preordination retreat. He's trained. He's been sent from a different diocese. So he's been sent from a diocese A. He's trained at a theological college in diocese B. And he's now coming up to minister in diocese C. So preordination retreat is you're making a bunch of key relationships with folk you've never met before. This is going to be your cohort that you're ordained with. And these are going to be your archdeacons and your bishops and all these sort of people that are going to be really quite important in your life. And the night before the ordination, they're at dinner together, and this chap turns to another uh, person on the retreat and says, um, so what do you make of the 39 articles? And the second person says, sorry, what are they? Yeah. And this guy's he's in quite a weird spiritual place anyway, because getting ordained is very, very significant. Uh, and he said he just didn't know, <laughs> didn't know what do you do at that point. But it seems to me that to be an Anglican, faithfully, is to engage with our history. That's the history of the church universal from those ecumenical creeds. That's also the history of the Church of England, formed by things such as the 39 Articles. And there's some great history to read about. To be an Anglican is to understand what was going on with Henry VIII and what happened just after Henry VIII and why Queen Mary has a nickname and the something called the Elizabethan Settlement where essentially the form of robes and things was kept but the theology of continental Protestantism was codified. That's what's going on in Elizabethan Settlement. And it seems to me that at that point, you've got real clarity theologically, but you also have an, a true history of it not quite being enforced. To be an Anglican is to be part of that tradition, to have not stayed in the Church of Rome, for example. To be an Anglican is to understand some of the issues around the Great Ejection. Why is it that lots of evangelicals within the Church of England felt they had to leave in good conscience? Ask, ask Lee later, he'll tell you. To be an Anglican, to be in the Church of England, is to know something of the history of the Oxford movement. And the book Looks Mundi. And I, I'm not going to go into it in detail now, but it seems to me that one of the things that happened at that moment was a way was devised where folk thought they could make solemn promises in a way that didn't mean that their yes was yes and their no was no. We were early in the Sermon on the Mount, weren't we? Do you remember the end of Matthew 5? Jesus says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. It seems to me that it looks Mundi is where, came, where, where into the Church of England came a way of saying these things but not meaning what they clearly meant. It seems to me that a Christian cannot do that. It seems to me that a Christian has to simply let their yes be yes and their no be no. Again, ask me more about that if you'd like to. To be in the Church of England is to have been influenced by the charismatic movement. Uh, I grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s um, and was hugely blessed by lots of the things that were going on in the charismatic movement at the time. Although at the time, the charismatic movement was very new. And just like me when I was two years old, and many of us in our immaturity, not everything was perfect at the time either. The charismatic movements had a significant influence on the Church of England. And if we're going to engage, not just canonically, and not just creedally, but historically, we need to be aware of some of these things. I'm not saying you have to write an essay on the Elizabethan settlement. I'm saying that these are some of the ingredients of being an Anglican. Uh, do you want three? Here's three little lessons from church history. They've taken me years to learn and I forget them all the time. Three little lessons from church history. Uh, lesson number one there are great truths from the past to be mined and enjoyed that the Holy Spirit revealed to bigger brains and better hearts than mine and they wrote down 
And if I can just discipline myself to read slowly and carefully, there are some really gorgeous things to be discovered from church history. Remember C.S. Lewis always says, read a modern book and then read an old book because we swim in water. Have you ever tried describing water to a fish? I don't talk to fish, by the way. It sounds weird, doesn't it? But how do you explain water to a fish? We live in a context. And to read people with whom we agree theologically but lived in a different context is one of the ways we see our own context most clearly. There are great truths to be enjoyed and mined in history, and we should be really thankful for them. You and I don't have to just start from scratch. We're very grateful to saints of old. Second thing from church history, put not your trust in princes. Uh, That is to say, uh, humans are always imperfect. You read church history and you'll discover heroes who really were heroes. You'll discover people who started off as heroes and became villains. You'll discover people who started off as villains and became heroes. And you'll discover people who just are villains. (laughs) As far as one can see, and having mentioned Elizabeth earlier, I am not planning to open windows into human souls. Great truths to be enjoyed. Humans are really imperfect. Don't put your trust in them. And God's sovereign love for his church. Those are three things you'll learn by reading church history. And to be Anglican, to be faithfully Anglican, is to be awareness of that historical um, trajectory and that historical richness. I have a number of great heroes from the Anglican past and their great encouragements as they point me to Jesus. So those are your three alleys, canonic alley, creed alley, historic alley, uh, fourthly, internationally. Uh, how many provinces are there? 40. And how long until there'll be a 41st? It's not long, is it? So we're about to have our 41st province in South America. In other words, uh, this is where you start, Anglicanism starts to sound like a zoo uh, because it's governed by primates. Um, never mind. Um, so you've got 40, uh, 41 provinces, each of which has got a whole bunch of archbishops, each of which has got a senior archbishop who's called a primate. And they form the Primates Council, which is part of the Lambeth Quadrilateral. So you've got the Lambeth Conference every decade or so. You've got the Primates Council. You've got the Anglican Consultative Council and you've got the Archbishop of Canterbury. You've got this international aspect to Anglicanism. So when I read out those canons earlier, those are the canons of the Church of England, which is just one of the provinces of the Anglican Communion. Uh, Michael Nazarelli, a number of years ago, was over in America. And he thought, well, I'll just, um, let's just try and be positive. Let's try and be constructive. He had a number of concerns about what was going on in the Episcopal Church in America at the time. So he sits down with the primate of the Episcopal Church of America at the time, and he asks this person, would you be prepared to say in the liturgy, Jesus is Lord? And the primate of the Church of America said, no. I would be prepared to say Jesus is a Lord. Now, for Michael Nazarelli, that was the moment, he says, when he saw so clearly that the theological trajectory that he was worried about was really, really not just a trajectory, but it was a present reality. It's terrifying, isn't it? To think of not just an archbishop, but a primate of a province who is unwilling to say, Jesus is Lord. And that was part of what became the development of the GAFCON network. I don't know how much you know about GAFCON, but GAFCON, the story of GAFCON, really goes back to 2003. And in 2003, the Primates Council met because the first practicing homosexual had been ordained bishop. It's really important that you include the word practicing in that sentence. Okay? Really, really, really pastorally, theologically, and everything important, okay? There's absolutely no problem with having a homosexual bishop. But having a practicing homosexual bishop is a very different thing. And so Gene Robinson had been appointed bishop. And so the primates are working really hard through the primates council to try and work out how do they relate to the church in America. By 2007, was it Dar es Salaam 2007? By 2007, the primates have a unanimous agreement a unanimous agreement that is even signed by the primate of America 
okay? But there'll be sanctions on the American church if they don't repent of that consecration by September. So this unanimous communique, even signed by the American primate, is agreed in March, April, I think, 2007. And they're given a deadline of September by which to come back to biblical, historic, uh, worldwide Christian orthodoxy. And in the gap between the communique and the September deadline, the Archbishop of Canterbury issues his invites to the Lambeth Conference and invites absolutely everybody. And that really is when GAFCON was born. You talked to some of the primates who were in those meetings. They were doing a little bit like Martin Luther at the beginning of his time. He wrote to the Pope because he thought the Pope was going to fix stuff. He didn't originally write to the Pope to try and start a thing called the Reformation. He wrote to the Pope, my father in God, can you fix this stuff? Are you aware of this stuff? And it was only later on as he contended that he began to realize the Pope wouldn't. Well, these primates have been working, 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 got to unanimous agreement. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury, by issuing those invites at that precise moment, blew the whole thing apart. And that's where the Gafcon movement started, really. Because in 2007, they realized the primates and the Anglican quadrilateral was not going to solve the problem. Not going to solve the problem of heterodoxy uh, within the Anglican communion. So, canonically, creedally, historically, internationally, and then distinctively. I think these are four things. It's pretty hard to be an Anglican if you can't live with these four things. And they're four things you do need to understand if you're serving as an Anglican. Anglicanism is Episcopal, Protestant, established and broad. Episcopal, Protestant, established and broad. First of all, uh, it's Episcopal. That is to say, Anglicanism is synodically led, but Episcopal, no, Episcopally led, sorry, but synodically governed. It's Episcopally led, the bishops lead it, but bishops are accountable to synods. If you can't live with bishops, it's quite hard to see how you could be ordained as an Anglican. If you, if you think you could explain to me how you can be ordained by a bishop as an Anglican without believing in bishops, I'd love to know about that. But it seems to me that the Church of England, the Anglican Communion, is Episcopally led. Secondly, it's Protestant. The Church of England is the Protestant church by law established. It is not Roman Catholic. It is not Orthodox. It is not Baptist. It's a whole bunch of things it's not. It is Protestant. Now, this is something that's quite personal to me. A number of years ago now, I did the funeral for a lovely man who lives in our village, whose son is a Roman Catholic bishop. Um, so I did the funeral, and uh, everything went fine. And his son thanked me. And in fact, I think I'd done the funeral for his mother as well. So I had some good links with the family. Uh, nine months later, without my permission, a gravestone appears in our churchyard. Please pray for. Please pray for. And, and it's not been put up just by a, just some, some local person by mistake. It's been put up by a serving Roman Catholic bishop. It's just really what you don't want if you're a parish priest. And uh, I had to contend uh, within my diocese I had to persuade archdeacons and bishops and all the legal people in our diocese. I had to write briefing notes to our chancellor and all sorts of things. But at the heart of it all was I had to decide whether please pray for was something that is faithfully Anglican or not. I didn't have to decide whether it was faithfully evangelical. I didn't have to decide whether it was something that I, Andrew Towner, could do. I had to decide whether it could exist on a gravestone in a Church of England graveyard. And it seems to me the answer is it cannot. Not only is it not in the word of God to pray for the dead, but it's also repugnant to the word of God to pray for the dead. And the articles are very clear on it, and the articles point to Cranmer's sermons that are also very clear on it. And there's a, there's a, there's a sort of, shall I say robust, about dozen pages in some of Cranmer's um, sermons on it that are really, really clear. So... It is distinctively Episcopal, distinctively Protestant. It is distinctively established. So it's part of the established church. Um, that's a great thing, but, isn't it? It's a great thing, but, to be part of the established church. And it is broad. The Church of England 
is broad. I think, by the way, that every biblical church should be broad. That is, if Andrew Towner invents a church that is not broad, then it will only have one member. Can you guess his name? <laughs> and he doesn't always agree with himself. You know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think some things, and Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you know, there are things. The preaching to the spirits in prison, every time I read that, I think, oh, oh, maybe. No? Do you know no one else? So my, my, I'd have to expel myself from my very narrow church on alternate Thursdays, depending if my quiet time came back to two Peter. So churches are necessarily broad, and that breadth is a really good thing. Some, sorry, some breadth is a really good thing. There's a breadth that helps, and there's a breadth that hinders. Uh, some of you will have heard about Anglicism being a three-legged stool. I mentioned hooker earlier. Let me just give a little bit of a thought on, on hooker for you under this broad concept. The three-legged stool was about uh, three different uh, philosophies of decision-making. Uh, one is uh, reason, that is logic, um, that is using our human brains. One is tradition, and one is Bible. And Hooker is really clear that the Bible within the Church of England trumps tradition and reason. Okay? I think nowadays it's more helpful to think of a fourth leg to the stool which is scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. This is one of the great blessings of the charismatic movement, isn't it? One of the great blessings of the charismatic movement is to be taught again how to feel deeply the truths we confess. That's a great gift, isn't it? It's always been there down church history. John Calvin is the, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. John Owen... You know, you read these guys properly and you read in their own context how much joy and delight they have in their affections, Jonathan Edwards. So it's always been there, but our church had temporarily lost it and it's been one of the great blessings of the charismatic movement. Now, those four legs need some understanding. And it seems to me that Hooker's absolutely right. To be a Hooker Anglican is to believe that Scripture trumps all of those things. Why am I a sola scriptura guy? It's because I've lived long enough to know that I'm an idiot. I'm a pastor. Week in, week out, I stand at a pulpit in front of people. And I teach the Bible sequentially for a lot of reasons. But the best reason is to protect them from me. One of the reasons I do sequential exposition is to protect the flock of God from me and my opinions. Does that make sense? I teach through the whole Bible. The bits I instinctively love the bits I instinctively haven't got a clue about, and the bits I instinctively think, oh, well, I don't know. Because I sit, so preaching is not this. Preaching is not this. Let me ram the Bible into you. Preaching is this. Let the Holy Spirit of God, who caused the scripture to be written, bring the scripture to bear so on this speaker that the scripture through the speaker will come to bear on those who hear So scripture, reason, uh, tradition, and experience. It seems to me, by the way, that we're not to think theologically of a square, then, of these four pegs. So you're not to think sort of liberalism and Catholicism. So liberalism, reason, as in if we just trust human logic and that wins. Or, or Catholicism, trusting tradition. Or charismaticism, letting experience be the trump card. Or evangelicalism. I don't think that works at all. I think it's more of a spectrum... And it's a spectrum from uh, liberalism over here all the way through over here. And it's possible to be on that spectrum and to be charismatic. Almost everyone on that spectrum. So I've got dear charismatic friends who are way more reformed theologically than me. And I've got dear charismatic friends who are way, way, way down on the liberal side of the spectrum. And I've got people who are more Catholic than me who are also at all the different ends of the spectrum. Does that make sense? So I don't think the square is helpful. I think there's a trajectory from a liberal end of the spectrum to a conservative end of the spectrum. Do you notice I'm not pointing out the right place on the spectrum? I'm trying to be super fair to all of us here. I'm just saying there's a spectrum. And you'll be meeting people to the left and right of you on the spectrum all the time. Okay? And it's possible to be charismatic and almost anywhere on that spectrum. And it's possible to be Catholic-ish and to be almost anyone on the spectrum. Does that make sense? Again, you can ask about that if you like. Uh, to bring this to conclusion, 
To be Anglican is to be willing to believe and stand and contend. Here's the ordinal. Bishop says to you, are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain sufficiently all doctrine required of necessity for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And are you determined out of the said scriptures to instruct the people committed to your charge and to teach nothing but that which you shall be persuaded may be concluded and proved by the scripture? Will you be ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrines contrary to God's word and to use both public and private admonitions and exhortations as well as to the sick as to the whole within your cures as need shall require and occasion be given. That's jolly hard, isn't it? But just like the referee on a rugby pitch or the referee on a football pitch, what you and I need clarity on to be able to do that is to know exactly what Anglicans is. That's how you and I will be able to fulfill that charge. If we are already ordained or if we're thinking about getting ordained. It's been said before, hasn't it, that if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And my friendships in the Church of England are pretty much living proof of that. Um, shall I pray? Shall I pray? And then we'll give each other well, over to you. You're in charge. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for the church. We know that you're glorified in your church. We praise you that there's a beauty in imperfect uh, people who love the Lord Jesus Christ gathering together. And we pray, our Father, for each other, that as we gather in this conference, you'll be giving us increasing clarity on what Anglicanism is and why it matters. Father, we know that none of us ever think perfectly. And we praise you for your perfect word. And we pray that in this issue, as in every other issue, it might be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Don't go away. We have time for a few questions. So um, anybody want to kick off with a question? Something that's been burning in your breast as you've been hearing that? Yes, I thought there might be something. Okay. Yep, one, then two, then three. Um. I'm sorry if this is a silly question because I didn't hear it correctly, but I think when, when we read the, uh, the canvas at the beginning, it yeah. says, um, you know, we, we believe in fetish articles, which are not repentance word, but, and then I think you said, so to be an Anglican, we believe in fetish articles so far as they're not repugnant to the word of God, which is not the same thing, is it? So is it that we believe in fetish articles, which, by the way, are in fact not repugnant to the word of God, yeah. or is it we believe in articles? Thank you. A2, the third nine articles. I don't know your name, I'm sorry, mate. Ben. Ben. Just help me out and do names at the beginning of questions. That'd be great. The third nine articles are agreeable to the word of God and may be assented unto with a good conscience by all members of the Church of England. So they are. are. So it's, it's the, af so it's the affirmation. Rate. To our interpretation, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Which is an occasional struggle for some evangelicals, isn't it? Um, yes. And there are some fantastic publications on the articles that are available over there uh, we'll by people like Gerard Bray for example and others <clears throat> yeah no they are so yeah if you if you read the articles and you think oh there's five of these that I cannot say are agreeable to the word of God then yeah or the, the article about descending into hell which is your question in the Greek yeah and you have to go back and do your work on that don't you you have to go back and do your work on the Latin and on the debates that shape, yeah, I agree. Get a copy of Foundations of Faith, read through that chapter on that particular article, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then see what time you go to sleep. No, I mean, talk to us about it at breakfast. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ben. Good Did one. you want any more on that? But yeah, the, I, quoted, I misquoted it when I glossed it for you. I do apologize. Thanks for asking. Uh, Was it? I think, yeah. Steve. Yeah. Um, so the thing about the breadth, which is really interesting, I'm, I'm currently studying at St. Malitis, yep. um, which, which really does pick up one of its strengths, is the, the, the whole breadth of traditions. And we, we were told right at the beginning, you know, our philosophy is one of generous orthodoxy. And 
Uh, I said, what does that mean? To which the reply was, well, nobody's really sure. We're trying to work it out. Uh, the, the, the challenge comes, I guess, when there is that breath and we're thinking about, um, you know, is it testable by scripture, etc., etc. When I have this view, which I think is testable by scripture, and my good friend has this view, yeah. which he thinks is testable by scripture, and my other good friend thinks, how do we, in the discussions, if you like, know, know what, what's right and what isn't? What's Anglican and what isn't? Thank you, Steve. That's a great question. Uh, let me give you a, a, a starter for 10, because it's a massive question. Um, I think it's really important when we're doing our theological reading to not just work out what we believe, but to work out how it sits with other things. I tend to think of it as a bit of a theological dartboard. So there are some things that we believe that are right at the undeniable center, and there are some things that we, do, we believe that are right at the extremity. And I think you and I not only have to work out what we believe, but where they sit. Because once we know where they sit, we're going to know how to contend on them. Now, we're going to contend with grace on all of these different issues, but I'd like to think that I would have conversations out here in a very different tone of voice than I'd have conversations out here. So if, if there are things in the Bible where, where the warning is that these could send someone to hell, then we're going to contend with real grace on those, but, but we might be sort of more passionate within our gracious contending than stuff on the outside. I just think, well, you know, people with their Bibles open can, can lovingly disagree on this till the cows come home. And there is a right answer, and we'll find it out one day. In other words, uh, the uniqueness of Christ. His is the only name under heaven by which we might be saved. That is right at the heart of the dartboard. Trinity, uh, scripture, justification by faith alone substitutionary death on the cross. There are a number of things that would be right at the heart of the dartboard for Anglicanism, creeds and so on. And then there'd be some things that are really important, but they're not right at the core. I think the things right in the middle are, are things where you can have no confidence that someone is saved if they deny them. The danger for some of us is, even, see, the danger for some of us is um, Everything I believe is from the Bible. The Bible's right in the core, so therefore everything's in the core. Well, those sort of people are impossible to talk to. And I've probably been one of them on various occasions, so I feel like I could say that with deep confidence in public. Uh, the danger for some of us is by character, everything's out here. Who cares? Let's just be loving and love each other. Well, that's not right. What I've tried to show is how the Anglican system allows you and I to have those conversations. Now, the big issue of the day um, within Anglicanism it seems to me that if we take the canon seriously and the way that everything Anglican must be tested by Scripture, so it must be A, faithful to Scripture, and B, not repugnant to Scripture, on the big issue of today, a number of the scriptural people writing on that issue have given up trying to make the argument that it's scriptural. Which I'm personally, I mean, John Dunnett more on this tomorrow morning. But um, I'm very grateful that they've done that because it makes it really super simple within Anglican circles to say, well, look, this is where we are as Anglican. Faithful to scripture, not repugnant to scripture. Do you want to say any more on that? Uh, well, maybe over coffee. We're going we're yeah, to break sure. for tea and stuff in a minute. We had one other question, unless anyone else... It's got one on the phone. Yeah, so I think Tom had his hand up, was it? Oh. Before, yeah. And then we'll have to break, I think, after that. But you can come and chat to him, Tom. I think it's just um, a clarification that might have been an error of my hearing. I think you used the word quadrilateral to refer to the Archbishop of Canterbury, ACC, Primates Council, and one other thing, which are the four instruments of communion. Yeah. And the, the Chicago Lambeth quadrilateral is uh, the authority of scripture, the historic episcopacy, the two yeah. sacraments. My apologies. I was talking about the four instruments of communion. So I was talking about the Lambeth Conference, the Primates Council, the Ancon Consultative Council, and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah. The instruments of communion. Sorry, that was my. No, no, it's just, just thinking internationally, I think actually the Lambeth Quadrilateral is quite helpful because the 39 Articles in the Prayer Book don't have the legal position they have in the Church of England in other churches. So uh, it's almost like the, the lowest common den denominator of what all the provinces have in common should be, the sufficiency of scripture, the historical but the two dominant sacraments and something else. Creeds. Creeds, yeah.
Thank you. That's a really helpful clarification. That was a mistake of Andrew reading his notes. And it's great that you've embodied for us the, the, the truth that no man is perfect. So oh. it was cleverly done, I thought. Nearly really 43 years. You did that. Nearly 43 years practice of embodying that. Um, if you had more questions, just catch me over coffee. Thank you. That was terrific. Let's thank.